Well, I'm getting situated. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We are in the fourth Sunday of Advent. So we've had four, this is the fourth message, next week being Christmas. But we've had, we've talked about the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. We've talked about the promise of forgiveness. We've talked about the promise of a king and a kingdom. And this morning we're gonna be talking about the promise is for all. Our passage is Romans 10, 13, but we'll probably be there between nine and 13 most of the morning. But be real with you, we're gonna be flying over all of Romans. This is a familiar verse to many of you. I, I think this is the end of the Romans road. Those, some of you may have known that tract or that you may have been taught that method. I probably learned the Romans road, I think I was six or seven. It was one of those, uh, one of those evangelistic uh, things that I used, that was used when I was in Bible college and in college and in doing uh, ministry, street ministry and ministry in, in missions. But it's, it's really the Romans road is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then John, or then Romans 5.8, and excuse my King James here, but God commends his love or demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes there's Romans 5, 12 in there, sin came into the world by one man and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Then we get to Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you, believe with your, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The end of the Romans road is where we're at. And we're gonna really be thinking through that whole argument because that's what Romans is about, right? It's an epistle of the gospel. It's a gospel tract. It's a letter explaining the gospel to the Romans and making sure that they're very crystal clear on what the main thing is, which is the gospel. And so those are the verses where we find ourselves this morning. Romans chapter 10, and we're gonna pick up mid-sentence on verse nine. Please follow with me. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. You guide us. You give us life. You give us encouragement. You chastise us. You guide us with your word. We would pray this morning that your spirit would meet with us over the next 30 to 40 minutes and that we would hear your word and that we would 
take refuge in your word and that we would cling to your word and that we would be instructed by your word. Conform us to your image. We long to glorify your son. In Jesus' name, amen. I love the Christmas season. I love really everything about Christmas. I don't like gift giving, but I don't like gift buying. And, and really, it's a, it's, a, it's a whiny because it's not the money part of it. It's just, I only have two gifts I have to buy. I only have one person I have to buy for. Everything else my wife takes care of. I have to buy for one person. I have to buy two gifts, and I stress about it. And, and, uh, and it, that, that part of Christmas, don't like. But I love the lights. I was telling the morning services that we had this tradition when our kids were little, we would take drives in the evening and we would look at the Christmas lights and I would say, Christmas lights on the left or Christmas lights on the right. And that was the way we taught our kids how to do left, right. We were homeschooling at the time. So, you know, those things are big deals, right? Left and right. And uh, it's funny because we've got, we did the same, we're doing the same thing with our grandchildren and we've got like three age groups of grandchildren and and I know when we first moved here, I, I did that with a couple of grandchildren in the car. And one of them spoke up and said, well, that's where mom got it from. And I said, what? And he said, well, yeah, mom does that. And I thought, oh, that's cool. And so then at Thanksgiving, we had some of the younger grandkids and uh, we were doing it on the way home. And all of a sudden, uh, my, my son's daughter chirped up and said, lights on the left before I could do it. And I thought that was really cool. And it was clear to me that she knew exactly what we were doing. And she knew her left from right. And I thought that was pretty cool too. But I love Christmas lights. I love all of the diversity of Christmas. Thinking about Christmas trees, you know, we, some of you, Christmas trees are all different. I bet you if, if, if we took a poll in this room, I bet you every single one of you, those of you who have a tree, have a different kind of tree, right? There are some of you who got a fake tree. There's some of you that have a fake green tree. There's even people that have fake white trees, right? There are people that have trees that already have the lights installed on them. Then there are some of you that have a real tree, but it's probably a Charlie Brown tree. There's some of you that have a nice tree, and then there's some of you that probably have, you have a great room and you probably got this huge tree. So lots of different kind of trees, and some of you again say, I don't go in for that stuff and we don't have a tree, we'll just enjoy everybody else's tree, or you could be having a bad year and you just said, this isn't the year for trees. But I bet you even with that commonality, I bet you everybody's tree is, is decorated differently. Some of you have different colored lights, some of you have a theme, some of you have all kinds of things that are traditional for you and, and ornaments that are meaningful, and some of you have ones that, hey, this looks cool this year and you do something different every year. So we're all different in the way we do our Christmas trees. We're all different. I remember one year, I just have to tell you this, my mother-in-law is really good and really good at decorating. One day we came into her house and she had decorated her big tree with strawberries. The whole tree was like a strawberry ornament. All the tree, the whole tree, big tree, hundreds of strawberry ornaments. And I'm looking at my wife and she's like, you know, well, where do you get strawberries? They don't grow on trees. They're not part of Christmas. There's no, I knew no tradition. To this day, I don't know what that meant. And you, you may have some other ones. Maybe yours have pickles all over them. I, I don't know. But there's lots of diversity in Christmas. And I was thinking last week uh, when Jimmy was talking about Christmas movies. And it's like, 
I'm going to tell you that probably Jimmy's Christmas movies and my Christmas movies, probably our top five or our top ten, there's probably no similarities. Probably no similarities. So I looked on the internet, and I looked to see what were the top Christmas movies. And I'm telling you, every website that you looked at had a different group. And there are some that, some that started with Gremlins and Die Hard, and there are some that started with It's a Wonderful Life, and you know there's all kinds in between. But here's the list I, I thought was the best and the most representative. So the number one movie, White Christmas. Number two, Home Alone. And that, that's kind of grown on me over the years. Number three, A Christmas Story. Number four, Elf. I tell you, some of this is generational because I remember a few years ago sitting with my oldest son and his wife celebrating Christmas and we were talking about great movies and they said Elf was the best movie. And Diane and I looked at it and said, we, we've never even seen it. And so we had to watch Elf that, that day and it was okay. Number five, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Number six, Miracle on 34th Street. Number seven, Nightmare Before Christmas wouldn't be on my list. The Grinch would probably be on my list, but not that. And It's a Wonderful Life came in in the top 10 as well. Now, one thing I can be certain of is if we took a poll, everybody in here would probably have a different list of what Christmas movies you liked or Christmas programs that you liked. Maybe even in the same household, there'd be a difference between what you like at Christmas. There's a great amount of diversity. Think about Christmas music. Think about Christmas music. Go out there and Google what the most popular Christmas songs are, and it's going to be very, very different. Here's Billboard's top 20. Okay, number one, All I Want for Christmas by Mariah Carey. Now, I can guarantee you that's not mine, number one. <laughs> nothing, no, no, nothing against Mariah Carey. Number two, Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home by Darlene Love. Never even heard it. Maybe you have. Number three, Christmas Song by Nat King Cole. I got it. That's good. Last Christmas by Wham is number four. Again, it's a good, good song, but probably wouldn't make my, all, my top 20. Number five, White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Number six, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee. Number seven, Feliz Navidad by Jose Feliciano. That's a good song. And this next one kind of got me. Christmas in Hollis with Run DMC. Now, I don't associate Run DMC with, with uh, you know, it's, it's tricky, right? But I don't, I don't get it with, I don't get it with, uh, the, with the Christmas in Hollis. Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Bruce Springsteen. This Christmas by Danny Hathaway. Christmas Time is Here by the Vince Gilardi Trio. Then Blue Christmas by Elvis. Santa Tell Me by Ariana Grande. Don't even know who that is. <laughs> I guess it's generational, right? Generational. It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Andy Williams. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas by Judy Garland. Never heard her sing it before. Little Saint Nick by the Beach Boys. And then they round out the top 20 with Jingle Bell Rock by Bobby Helms and Run Rudolph Run by Chuck Berry. Now again, I guarantee you that your top 10 or your top 20 are different from that, and they're probably different from the person sitting next to you. Because we have differences in the way we think of Christmas, we celebrate Christmas different, we eat Christmas different, our traditions are different. 
Recognizing that, what we want to talk about today is what do we share? And that's what this Advent series has been about, is what do we share during this season? And what do we have in common? And we have in common the promises. The promise of Emmanuel, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of kingdom, and the promise that it's for everyone without distinction or exclusion. So this morning our main thought is, our gospel includes a certain and comforting promise for everyone. Our gospel includes a certain and comforting promise for everyone. And I want to look at this passage really under three heads, and that is, first of all, we want to talk about the uh, source of the promise, the extent of the promise, so where did it come from, who's it for, and then third, the substance of the promise, what is the, the actual promise. So let's dig right in. Romans chapter 10, who is it for? Now, one of my favorite... You know, one of, one of my favorite fictional characters is known to, to say, if it's too good to be true, it ain't true. And we are, we, we're 21st century adults. We know that there are many offers out there that just can't be true, okay? The guy on the radio that tells you that if you buy one window, he'll give you all of the rest of the windows for free, there's probably a catch. There's probably something in the, in, in the small print, Anyone that comes and tells you you're going to get something for nothing, probably a catch. There's probably something that you ought to look for. And so we are discerning. And when somebody makes an offer to us, we're very, very clear. It's like, I want to make sure I understand exactly who it's for and what the conditions are. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is who is this promise for? What are the conditions? And what should I make of this promise. So first of all, the source of this promise. Now again, Paul has been explaining the gospel to the Roman believers. He gets, to, he gets down to this passage where he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That statement is not a new statement. He is quoting that statement from an obscure Old Testament prophet named Joel. Now Joel is, is, a, is a prophet that we don't know a lot about. We don't know when he lived. We don't know who he prophesied to. We don't know much about him at all. Bible commentators really are, 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 are they don't know for sure who he is. They don't know if he, they think that it was either 800 years before Christ or 400 years before Christ that he prophesied. What we do know is that he prophesied to the people of Israel that a, a prophecy of judgment. He said, the Lord is going to bring a plague a plague of locusts and insects and bugs upon you because of your sin and because of your rebellion and because of your idolatry, because you've left your first love and because you've chased after the gods of the land, God is going to judge you and he's gonna judge you severely. Now most believe that that judgment took, that that was pre the Babylonian captivity and what happened was from that prophecy that it was fulfilled in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, destruction of Jerusalem in, in 586. Most people believe that. Or it could, be, it could be after 586 and he could be referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Either way, Joel is saying to the people of God, he's saying, you are going to be judged. But in the context of that judgment, he says, 
but then the Lord will bring you back and the Lord will restore you. And in that day, he will pour out his spirit on you and your sons and your daughters will speak in different tongues. And in that day, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's prophesying that Yahweh will once, that Yahweh has not forsaken his people, but that he will one day, even in the context of judgment, even in the context of painful judgment and loss, he still will be found by his people. If they call on his name, they will be saved. Paul takes that and he applies it to this situation. If you call, if you now, if you, the readers, the hearers, if you hear the word of God in this time and you cry out, Yahweh will save you through the Lord Jesus Christ. An amazing, amazing statement of how Paul puts Yahweh and Jesus together as being the saving mechanism for the people. So this is an ancient promise. It is an ancient promise, shrouded in mystery in the Old Testament that Paul comes out and says, it's fulfilled now. Do you remember where else this verse was quoted? Do you remember in the book of Acts? Do you remember? at Pentecost, when the tongues of fire have come down and people are speaking in other tongues and there's, there's a mir miracles are going on. And remember the people say, hey, these guys are all drunk. They got into the new wine early. And Peter says, they're not drunk. It's only, it's only th the third hour. This is what the prophet Joel said would happen. This is God's fulfillment of the prophet Joel now. The salvation of the Lord, the day of the Lord, it's now. This is all happening through his servant, Jesus Christ. Paul is getting on that and saying, if you, his summation, if you of the gospel, is if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So it's an ancient promise for us. If it's 800 years before Christ, it's at least 2,800 years old, right? 2,900 years old. It's an ancient promise. Number two, who's the promise for? What's the extent of the promise? Well, it says everyone. So do we need, do we need our Greek New Testaments to understand what everyone means? We don't. It starts... Paul says very clearly from the very beginning, he says, I was called for the gospel to preach the gospel to the nations. He says, doesn't matter if you're Greek or if you're barbarian, I have obligation to preach the gospel to you. Doesn't matter if you are Roman citizen or slave, I have the duty to preach the gospel to you. Doesn't matter if you're a Hellenistic Jew or a Palestinian Jew. It doesn't matter if you're Jew and Gentile, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your status in society. And the Roman world was filled, it was a, it was a very caste-oriented society. And you had perks and prerequisites, perks that would go with your status that you were born in or that you'd achieved through wealth. Paul is saying no distinction. Just, just look at the verses in, chapter four, in, in verse four. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look at verse 11. 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So it's everyone, it's all. He goes further and says, there's no distinction. There's no distinction. God in the Old Testament had marked out, had made a distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction in the gospel. No man-made distinction, no God-made distinction. There is no distinction. And he's gonna make that clear in Romans 3 when he says, he, he's, gonna, he's gonna say to the, to the, the non-Christian, the non-Jew, he's gonna say, oh, there is none righteous, no, not one. Then he's gonna go to the religious man, the Jew, and he's gonna say, there's none righteous, there's no, not one, there's no fear of God between your eyes, before their eyes. And he's gonna say very clearly, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No distinction. And here, that's the same idea. There's no distinctions. There's no, nothing that sets people apart. There's nothing that would exclude you or anyone else from this offer of the gospel. There's no exclusion. Now, some of you might know, I, I, tra I do a lot of traveling in my, in my job. In fact, I know airports really well. And this week, I was uh, Friday, I was flying out of Wichita. Wichita's a little bit smaller airport, the Dwight Eisenhower Airport there's a nice airport, but it's kind of small. There's one gate, I mean, there's one, there's one entryway, one security. And so when you go in there, it's Christmas time, things are starting to get crazy. So the, the gate was wound around and there was about 100 people that were waiting in line to, get, to go what, through one TSA agent. Okay, so I travel all the time, I'm pre-check. So I walk around the outside, and I get up to there, and they take me right away. While well, all of those hundred people are standing there. Why? Well, because I have a perk. I'm TSA pre-check. I walk through, don't have to take off my belt, don't have to take off my shoes, don't have to take off my laptop. Get very, very, you know, very, very cursory review. Then, when I get to the airplane, I've been flying American a lot and through the pandemic a lot. So I've got a lot of status, an executive something. And so get on the plane first, get the best seat. Three or four people are asking, or three or four times people are asking me if they can freshen up my, my, my ice water. I get perks. Now, I get perks for all the wrong reasons, right? Because I, I, because I travel a lot and they know they're, they're trying to keep my business and they know I have choices. But I have perks, there's things that make me different. There are things that give me privilege in, in the airport and with the airlines. That, but there's no perk and there's no privilege when it comes to the gospel. There's, there's no perk and there's no privilege when it comes to an evaluation of where you stand before God. Doesn't matter who you were born from, doesn't matter your family, your lineage, or what you've accomplished. There's no perk. There's nothing that sets you apart. There's no distinction. And we have distinctions. Our, 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 our world is full of distinctions. You wanna buy a house? You have, to have a, you have to have some sort of credit score, right? You wanna go to a, you wanna go to a, 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 a strong, high-tier college? You gotta have a big SAT score and good grades. There's all of these qualifications. But when the gospel, when the gospel in the gospel, there is no prerequisite. There are no tests, there are no entrance scores, there's nothing that would exclude you 
or set you apart. You don't have an opportunity that others don't have, and you're not excluded from an opportunity. No distinction in sin or in grace. And there's no reason for you to exclude anyone or to exclude yourself. Now this shouldn't surprise us. This open-handed, open-armed, inclusive, universal appeal of the gospel shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us. Think of the nativity. Are there only Jews at the nativity? And are they all the ones you would have expected to be there? There's wise men, they're foreigners, right? They're shepherds. They're in, they're in a stall. The nativity speaks humility and it speaks openness. Jesus showed no partiality. Remember when he, was sitting, when he was eating with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees came along and said, obviously he can't be God and he can't be a prophet because if he, if he was God and he was prophet, then he certainly would know who he's eating with and he wouldn't be eating with them. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus' response is the sick go to doctors and physicians come to heal the sick. I've come to deal with sinners. So it's the extent of this promise is for everyone. It's all without distinction. And I'm telling you, if you go through the book of Romans, you're gonna see it over and over and over. Paul is saying no distinction, no exclusion, no, no prerequisite, no favoritism. God is not partial, he's Lord of all, and he will, he will bestow richly his blessings on all who believe. And that's the one, the one test, right? Is it's to those who believe. We know very clearly that that's what it says, is if you, because if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. This promise goes along with those gospel facts. Paul very clearly at the beginning talks about the gospel facts. He was born the son of David. He was born of Mary, a virgin. He lived a godly life without sin. He died for our sins and our trespasses and God miraculously gave him life, raised him and brought in, and put him on the throne beside him. And now he is Lord of all. Those gospel facts, where those gospel facts are preached, are talked about, are sung about, wherever those gospel facts are, implicit is this promise that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's the promise. It's a very universal promise. All nations, all humans, all types of people, there is no distinction. Now thirdly, the substance of the pro promise. The substance of the promise. Those who call upon the name of the Lord. Now that's pretty, it's pretty simple. Those who call upon the name of the Lord. Now again, this is a historic statement. This is a statement that again, Joel picks up, but this calling on the name of the Lord is kind of, 
It's kind of throughout the, the Old Testament history been a statement that summarizes or describes people who have godly worship, people who are God's people and who worship him rightly. The first time you see this phrase is Genesis 4, right after the birth of Seth, when it says, at that time, people, men began, began to call upon the name of the Lord. And you see that thought of calling on the name of the Lord all through the scriptures. And in fact, Paul uses that to basically describe those who are Christians in his day. They're those who call upon the name of the Lord. So what does it mean? Well, looking at the context, go back to verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at verse 14. But how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe on him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But if they've not obeyed the gospel, as Isaiah says, and let's, let's skip down to, to um, um, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it means to confess that he is the servant of Yahweh and that he is the means of salvation and that he's the only means of salvation. In Acts 4, it's gonna say, there's one mediator between God and man and that man is Christ Jesus. Remember the disciples at one point, Jesus said, are you guys gonna leave me too? Everybody else is leaving me. Are you gonna leave me too? And what did Peter say? Where else are the words of life? You have the words of eternal life. So what does, it mean to, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It means to believe, to trust, to put your faith wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of it, it's the knowledge, it's the mental agreement, assent, and it's the trust of resting on Jesus and Jesus alone. John Stott says, to call on him is more precisely to call on the name of the Lord, that is to appeal to him to save us in accord with who he is and what he has done. Everyone who thus calls on him, we are assured, will be saved. So the promise that goes along with the gospel is if you call on the name of, if you believe in your heart and you rest you put your trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. You confess with your mouth that he's Lord, Lord of all, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you should be saved. That's the promise. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that that should be that wide open. Think of, think of, the, Lord, think of the Lord himself who says, all you who are weary, all you who are tired and distressed and beaten up and frustrated and lost, all of you without hope, come unto me and I will give you rest. Somewhere else he says, if you're hungry, come to me and I'll feed you. If you're thirsty, come to me and I will give you water to drink. You see, the Lord has wide open arms. If you call upon him, he will feed you, he will give you rest, he will give you something to drink. And we have many examples. 
many examples of saying it a little bit differently throughout the scripture, that invitation to come to Christ, come to me. Remember when the little kids were coming to Jesus and the disciples kind of pushed them away saying, push them away, what did he say? Let them come, for such is the kingdom of God. Let them come. You see, the Lord Jesus universally opens his arms. Now, not only does the scripture give us examples of that invitation, the scripture gives us examples of people that hear that invitation and respond. Think of the Philippian jailer. You remember the story, right? Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi for preaching the gospel. They're singing hymns at, at night at midnight and an earthquake happens, the, the prison is broken up and the prisoners are able to get out and the Philippian jailer is all about, is, 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 is uh, going crazy and he basically comes, he's getting ready to kill himself because he knows what the Romans are going to, what, what his superiors are going to do to him because he loses the prisoners. And they say, don't do that. And he says, gentlemen, what must I do to be saved? And what's the word? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it says that that very night he believed and his household believed and they were baptized and they became foundational members of the Philippian church. Pretty simple. Think of the dying thief. Remember, it says on when Jesus was dying, there were two thieves and one on each side. And at the very beginning, the scripture tells us that they both were kind of cursing Jesus, making fun of him. But somewhere during the middle of that, there's a change in one of the thieves. And li- listen to the words of Luke. So I, so I don't get them wrong. I'll quote to you. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do not, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come, when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what calling on the Lord looks like. It's a calling. It's a, it's again, it's an understanding of the gospel, the best that it's given to you. It's agreement with God, and it's throwing yourself on his mercy and clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. They'll be rescued from danger. They will be brought from a place of insecurity into a place of insecurity and blessing. It's most certain. And in fact, all of those Old Testament references, he goes to Isaiah and he says, none that come to him will be put to shame. The idea there is that judgment, at judgment, you will not be put to shame if you've called on the name of the Lord. So the substance of the promise is, it's an ancient promise. Number two, it's for everyone without distinction. No, neither you or I have the right to put uh, ex- barriers around anybody, any class of people, or any type of person, or any individual, and say that the gospel is not for them. That's not us, that's not for us. The gospel is wide open. It's certain and none will be put to shame. So as we conclude, I need to point out 
This is the message of the scriptures. This is the message of all of the scriptures. All of the scriptures come to this point. Confess Jesus as Lord. You have no alternative. You have, you come to this point and, and you have, you know, it's, al- it's almost like Lewis's trilemma, right? You have to say to yourself, who is Jesus Christ? Is he Lord? Or is he a liar? Or is he a lunatic? You can't say, this is a good moral order. This, he's a good teacher. You can't say those things. You come to this dilemma. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what all of scripture is about. On the road to Emmaus, when those disciples were walking there, Jesus opened up the scriptures and he said, all of these testify to me. All of scripture brings you to this point. Confess with the Lord Jesus, confess Jesus as Lord of all, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. No alternatives, no exclusions, nothing holding you back, nothing giving you privilege. That's the gospel. This is the, if the Bible is the sword of the spirit, if the Bible is the sword, this is the tip of the spear, the tip of the sword. This is where the sword comes into contact with you and your everyday life and where you are at now. This is the promise of God. That's all you've got. At the end of the day, through all of your life, you have the promise of God. You have the truth that's given in the promise of God and your trust in the promiser that he is able and he is faithful. You can trust his promise and you know he has the ability to fulfill his promise. That's what the resurrection said. The resurrection said his promise is real, his promise is effectual, and it's that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that works in our hearts and takes the spirit and gives us new life and will deliver us on the last day. That's the promise. Confess the Lord as Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Simple. We need to not make it any more complex. It's simple. Now, if you're in a position where you're not yet believing, I just appeal to you. What other solution do you have? You know, most people who know the gospel and don't come to Christ, it's usually not because they've reasoned their way to it. It's not because they've believed that, hey, there's no God and that they are philosophically naturalists. It's usually not because of the evidence and the logic. It's because the gospel stands in front between them and something they want. Or the Bible or the gospel, they're perceiving that the gospel holds them back from something they want or it, or it makes them do something they don't want to do. It comes down to you're choosing Christ or you're choosing another way that's more palatable, that's easier, that's more fun, that you think will give you greater gain. And I'm saying to you, Jesus is the way. He's the only method of forgiveness. He's God's means of your salvation. Don't walk away. Don't reject. Don't trade off. For what, can, what, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? If you're unbelieving, don't miss the message. This is the message of the scripture. This is the message of the Christianity. You can't deny it, you can't get away from it, and you can't avoid it. Number two, believers. 
This is a word of comfort. It's a word of celebration. It drives us to worship. It drives us to say, how can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's love? How can this be? And if we struggle with assurance, we have to remind ourselves that our confidence is not in our trust. Our confidence is in the promiser. Our confidence is in the promise and the promiser. I've got a couple quotes in my journal from R.C. Sproul and I didn't bring them with me, but it's, my trust is not in my feelings. It's not in my emotions. It's not where I'm at right now. My trust is in Jesus and in God's promise. And he doesn't move and he doesn't change. I change, I move, my promise is set in stone. And we've gotta remember that our confidence doesn't rest in our faith, it doesn't rest in our own stability and growth, so those things are good. It doesn't come from our strength. It comes from the strength of the one who already accomplished our salvation. Secondly, our hope is bound up from beginning to end. You have nothing but the promises of God. On your deathbed, you have the promises of God. These are the promises you cling to, that Lord, you say, anyone who calls upon your name and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. And we cling to that. We cling to that all the way to the end of our life. It's our confidence, it's our hope. And by the way, it's our confidence and our hope that God is always saving and he can save any among us, any in our family, any we love, any, there's no exclusion. Joe talked about yesterday how his dad, 20, 18 years, didn't, didn't, wasn't converted until 18 years after Joe was converted and heard the gospel, 18 years. But he did it. Who are we? Who are we? to put barricades and obstacles around people that God has not. We should not exclude anyone when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to our faith in God's ability to humble sinners and to bring them to himself. I don't know where you're at today. You may be in a time of loss. You may be, it may be loved ones, it could be relationships, it could be a job, it could be you've, you've, you're an illness, something physically that's got you. It could be all manner of things that, have, that make this a, a dismal time of, of life for you. In that dismal per, period of life, there is hope. And that hope is the hope of the advent, that God is with us, that he, he promises forgiveness, he promises a kingdom and a rule, and, he, and his promises are for all. Let's take those to heart and be like the thief, be like the, the uh, Philippian jailer, be like the blind man, Bartimaeus, and seek the Lord and his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We are 
We are at the end of the day, helpless and pitiful sinners who are groping around in the dark and we need you to continually remind us of your light, of your hope, of your love, and we continually celebrate that nothing can separate us from your love, not even ourselves. And so we thank you, Father, today for this word, and we just ask that you would bless us all uh, this Christmas season, that we would remember um, what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.